When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best coaches in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. This show is about you, and we're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some killer free ebooks as well as drills and exercises that'll help you become more charismatic and confident by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, listen to the toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com/toolbox. That's where you'll get the fundamentals of dating and attraction such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, all that stuff that's more important than you might think. We've got boot camps running every single month here in California. Details at theartofcharm.com, and I'm looking forward to meeting all of you guys here at The Art of Charm. Enjoy. All right, welcome to The Art of Charm podcast, the show that's more than just about getting the girl, but putting that garlic sauce on your personal growth kebab. I'm Jordan Harbinger, live from The Art of Charm headquarters on Hollywood Boulevard, where all the magic happens at AOC boot camps and training courses. Got the standard U.S.-Canada guys in here, as well as some guys from Puerto Rico. I guess that's... Technically part of the U.S., but almost kind of not. But either way, added a little flavor to this week's boot camp. Of course, they're tearing it up with our coaches right now. Today we have Robert Green on the show. We talk a lot about language learning, what him and the art of charm have in common, how to find your life's task, even if you think you're too young, too old, or already established in your field. And, of course, we want you to get the books through us and write to Robert if you have heard of him through us. Shows us that we're making a little bit of an impact and more importantly shows him that we're doing that as well. And of course, why it's important to apprentice and why you need a mentor and how to find one and why social intelligence is crucial on the path to mastery and how you can begin to develop it. So stay tuned here for Robert Green and enjoy. Yeah, ask me when I'm 54 and I'll be like, I get sick every fucking week, you know, or whatever. I haven't been sick in a long time. And I kept saying, oh, well, I'm, you know, this is it. I'm, I'm never going to get sick again. And then this hit me. So I don't know what the moral of the story is. I think the moral of the story is don't talk trash about how you never get sick. It's probably <laughs> just confirmation bias where you're like, lights turn off when I go under them. And you're like, yeah, yeah. that's amazing. <laughs> and you don't notice the 10,000 lights that don't go off when you walk under them. So you're like, yeah. I never get sick. Meanwhile, you get sick like once a year, you just forget about it and it's not yeah. a big deal, but it's like probably smack dab average for people getting sick and everyone thinks they just never get sick. I think you just nailed it. 
Plus, that, was, that was pretty good. Thank you. Plus, plus, there's those people that say like, "I never get sick," and it's like, "Yeah, but maybe you just don't slow down when you get sick." But you get sick. Your body gets sick. You might just ignore it. Well, the other thing that I've noticed, but I really have no idea what the science could possibly be, is that the moment I say something like that, that's when I get sick. Yeah, sure. Like I never get sick, and I'm in bed for a week. There's something Freudian, but I don't know what that is. So. I hear you. I feel I, uh, you on that. Is it true that you worked around 80 jobs before you became an author? Well, my girlfriend and I were counting, and I got up to 60. Then I said, you know, there's just – I have such bad memory that I'm sure there are all these jobs I've forgotten, so we just rounded up to 80. But in truth, maybe about 15 or so occurred, you know, before I graduated university because I had to sort of work my way through college. Right. I like to say after college where it really starts to matter, I had at least – 55 to 60 jobs. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, that's plenty. And you're not 185 years old. So did you just have these jobs for like a month or a couple weeks? And it was like, next. Well, uh, some of them were, you know, for a few days or a couple weeks. I've never had a job longer than 11 months. That was the longest I seemed to be able to sustain the boredom and the routine and looking at the same faces every day. I'd have a job where I would be like in television where you only work for four months on something and then they bring you back a year later kind of thing. But I just couldn't stomach any. I guess 11 months was the longest and then a lot of other jobs for like a week, two weeks, couple months here and there. Right on. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I was going to say anybody with that amount of experience in different fields is either doing a lot of things concurrently or a lot of things not for a long time. And you also speak five languages according to Wikipedia. But I always got to ask, like, do you speak five languages or is it like, yeah, I've got some Spanish under my belt. And then that made it into a Wikipedia article by somebody. Um, I live in Europe. My French is very strong. My Spanish is very strong. My German used to be strong and I can read it, but I wouldn't say I'm a great German speaker. And then Italian is probably the weakest. So if I really, really had to say, I'd say three for sure, probably four. The five is pushing it, but I'm very good at languages. So give me a couple months in Rome and my Italian would be very strong. You know, that's funny. You're the only other person I know personally that speaks five languages besides myself. And oh. I also, I always ask because whenever I meet people, they're like, I speak seven languages. I'm like, that's amazing. Which ones? And they're like Spanish and Portuguese and then German. And I'll say something in German and they're like, I don't know what you just said. And I'm like, that was pretty basic. So obviously <laughs> you're full of crap. Or yeah. they like, they know how to say, hi, my name is Jordan in that language. And they're like, I yeah. speak German now. Yeah, no, I don't consider it that way because that was my major in college. And, you know, it was comparative literature and I studied ancient Greek and, and Latin. So you, there are even more languages if you want to add that, although I don't speak them. No, but nor I, does anyone speak uh, ancient Greek or Latin really, right? Well, maybe a few Catholic priests somewhere can maybe converse in Latin, probably not a handful. Yeah, I take it very seriously. But like you, I've, knowing a few words is not speaking a language. So. My opinion is if you can't talk to a taxi driver, you don't speak that language. And that's a pretty low bar, too. Okay, well, that bar, I would say four. But as I said, give me like six to eight weeks in Italy and I'd be making it five. Yeah, definitely. It depends on the bar, too. You know, some people are like, if you can't watch the news, in which case I barely speak English. But other than that, if I can go to a bar and have conversations with people without having to look up every other word in the dictionary, that's legit. 
you are a, a great writer as far as we're concerned here. And the fact that you speak a lot of languages also makes a lot of sense. I, I'm always sort of baffled by people who can write really, really, really well in only one language and can't speak or understand anything in another language because it's almost like there's some sort of wasted talent there, I think. It's not that they're not really good at it, it's just they haven't applied there. Because if you can really master subtlety and nuance and humor in your native language, it seems like you should be able to pick up the basics of something else. Well, I don't know about that. There might be some truth to it, but I think that you can kind of divide people who are good at languages where they're sort of auditory-oriented people. Words and sounds, they can just sort of absorb their minds in it. It's sort of a type of person. Uh, I happen to, when I'm writing, I like hear the words before I even write them. But you can be a great writer that's just totally into the literary written aspect. You're not gifted at all for languages. I've known quite a few people like that. Yeah, I do too. That's what always surprised me. I think that you're right there because I'm very, very auditory. And I'm always talking to myself either out loud or in my head. Languages always came very naturally to me, except for in middle school and high school where I hated it. But that was just because it was French and I didn't care about memorizing a verb table. I was the same way. It wasn't until I lived there that I realized that I'm really good at languages. That's why whenever people go, I'd love to live abroad, but I suck at languages. I go, how do you know you suck at languages? Well, I never did well in school. And I'm like, memorizing the etra verb table and all its exceptions has nothing to do with you hanging out with some people and learning how to talk like them and mimicking accents, etc. And a big part of it is, if you go to France, are you alone? Do you have to learn it in order to be able to pick up this girl in a bar? Or do you have... Are you, you know, to get a job or are you hanging out with other Americans? If you dump somebody in the middle of France and their survival depends on it, they'll suddenly start getting better than they normally would because you really have to listen. A lot of people go live there and they're just hanging out with at McDonald's and, other, you know, hanging out with other Americans. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, the reason that I found out that I was good at languages was because even though I was terrible at them in high school, I, I was an exchange student. I ended up getting placed in the former East Germany and I was really pissed in the wow. beginning. And I thought it was awful, you know, in the beginning, I was like, this is terrible, this stupid communist, blah, 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 Cold War crap. And all these other students in West Germany were out partying, and there were tons of foreigners there, and it was so cool. And then about halfway through the year, everybody over there was homesick, and I was damn near fluent conversational German because nobody spoke English. And they were all, you know, people over there had taken five years of German prior yeah. They were doing okay, but my German was about on par with theirs. Wow, that's a great story. Wow. I remember waking up in the middle of the night one night and going, I have a choice to make. I can go home totally defeated. I can just suck it up, learn German, make yeah. some friends, and get the hell out of this house, which is depressing. And that's exactly what I did. And once I started doing that, the connection with my host family and the kids in school got yeah. really, really good. And then it was like, yeah. oh, Jordan's a real person. He can talk now. The last people to find out were my teachers because I knew they'd make me do work if they found out I could actually speak German. So I just would skip school and go hang out with immigrants and play hacky sack and sort of ditch and go hang out with like the burnout kids. And that was great because none of them were good at English. They were smoking weed and playing hacky sack in the town square. So I did a lot of hacky sack and drinking, you know, and doing stupid 17 year old kid crap. And I came back with awesome German. That's a great story. Yeah, your German must be pretty good. It hasn't gone away way either, which is great, because that's the other thing that people say is that it fades. Well, it fades, but it comes back pretty quickly. If you spent like a couple weeks in Germany, it would come back really fast. 
things like Spanish, I get to practice here quite often. So that keeps it alive. But like French, I don't know any French people here or German. So what I do is I listen to books uh, in French or German in my car and I kind of keep it in my head a little bit or watch movies in French, that kind of thing. That's phenomenal. I don't have the patience for that. That's for damn sure. One thing that you and The Art of Charm have in common, I saw this as a critique on a few websites that reviewed The 48 Laws of Power. People say that, yeah, this might be true or this might be effective, but somehow it's amoral or, you know, you shouldn't be telling people about this or Uh you shouldn't practice these things because you're just going to make people ruthless. What do you say to people who seem to be, in my opinion, they're wishing for a different reality? You know, we get this at The Art of Charm, too. Like, you shouldn't be teaching people how to get other people to like them. You know, either you have this skill set or you don't. And people feel almost victimized by the idea that you can learn to be more charismatic. I see that with the 48 Laws of Power, you get all these high achievers like Will Smith, who's a friggin' awesome dude, learning from this book, and they say it's amazing. And then you get all these people going, oh, you're just teaching people to be ruthless. This is like a modern-day art of war. You're just a scumbag preaching scumbags how to be scummier. You know, what do you say to those people? Uh, Well, there's a lot of things I say. Anybody who's worked in the real world who doesn't live in a commune in Oregon has dealt with the 48 laws of power. They've dealt with psychotic, tyrannical bosses, men and women who think they know everything, who play all kinds of weird games, have egos. There's envy. There's passive aggression. There's even more nasty manipulations going on. And if you've lived through that, then the book of 48 Laws of Power, it seems almost even a bit mild. Oh, yeah, I've seen that and I know about it. And that's good. It helps me be aware of it. A lot of people who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, African-Americans or women, for instance, in the work world, they've seen all that power stuff really a lot more directly uh, than other people because they're looking at it from the other end. It's pretty clear and pretty obvious the power game can be pretty ruthless and those who have power kind of write the rules. But then you've got people who have a pretty good life who've never had anything bad happen to them. This is one type of person. And they whine and whine, well, why do you have to talk about this? This isn't the reality. Well, it's not the reality for you. So maybe don't read the book. And I'm happy you don't read the book. It's not your reality because you live in this small town in Oregon or you've managed to have a lot of money or you you never have encountered it. And that's great. Ever since the Bible and, and, and we've been recorded history, we've been seeing examples of this. And so for you to close your eyes to it is ridiculous. And the other thing I say is um, people who are sharks, who are manipulators, and we all know who they are, they don't really need the 48 laws of power. I mean, they know it. They were born that way a little bit, or, the, you know, the, the sociopath type. It's in their DNA. They have a sense of how to make people feel guilty and get things done from them. Whatever their particular manipulative game is, they don't need to read a book to hone those kinds of skills. There are a few people I've heard from readers where maybe someone was kind of borderline and the book did help them become pretty damn ruthless and done some <laughs> bad things. And I, I don't feel so good about that. I understand. But the majority of emails I get are from the kind of naive schmoes like myself 
who went out in the work world expecting that the world would be kind of like a, a literary adventure and discover it's not, a lot of people need instruction. They're too naive. A book not for the sharks, it's for the minnows, the people who don't know how these other people are operating. That's really who the book is addressed to. And I found it's weird because the last thing I'll say, the book's been out for 16 years now, and it's like a weird kind of mirror. You bring to the book your own past, your own obsessions, your own neurosis. We all have neuroses. And the book kind of makes you see what you want to see in there. And I've noticed a lot of people who feel uncomfortable about their own manipulative dark side. The book makes them feel doubly uncomfortable. And those tend to be the types to get very upset about it. Though that would be my long-winded answer there. It's very similar with The Art of Charm. People who write in and say, thank goodness you're teaching this to guys, both men and women will say that. Usually they're very confident people in one area or maybe lacking in another, especially if they're guys, they'll, they'll look at this and go, this has helped me fill in some gaps. And women who are generally confident will be very appreciative. It's only these heavily victimized women, especially, or people who really like to look at themselves as victims, men included, will go, shame on you. This isn't something you should be teaching. And it's like, well, obviously your own insecurities are very much reflected in this statement. Otherwise, yeah. you'd be looking at this as a very useful tool that can be used for good. But if you're only looking at the dark side type of application, it makes me think, well, where does your mind go and how do you operate personally? Exactly. And it's never good to repress something. What they're saying is basically, this is true. This is how people are. But let's repress it. Let's not make it public. Let's not talk about it. Let's just kind of shove it under the rug because it makes us uncomfortable. It then comes out in other ways. You know, I wanted to generate a frank, open discussion about the things I saw in Hollywood, for instance, the games that people were playing, as opposed to constantly having to repress it and pretend that everybody in the film world is just liberal and wonderful, etc. Because I was kind of sick of that. So I think it's better to have it out in the open and have people talk about it. If some people are using it for bad purposes, that's okay. That happens. But it's generally better for things to be aired out than to be repressed. I agree with that 100%. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. 
Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. All right, let's get back to the show. Now, of course, I'd like to talk a little bit more about Mastery versus The 48 Laws of Power, which is an awesome book, but maybe a little bit more for another time. I yep. definitely think that uh, Mastery is such a, a brilliant piece of work. I keep getting my copies stolen, which shows uh -huh. you how good and how in demand this book is. The beginning, of course, is about finding your life's purpose. And this is no small task. A lot of people write in to me here at The Art of Charm and they say, how do I find my life's purpose? How do I find my passion? How do I find what I like doing? And you actually have a, a little bit of a rubric for discovering your calling, finding what you call your life's task. And I'd love to have you shed some light on that because I think a lot of guys could use that. I know I wish I I had read that 15 plus years ago. Yeah, but look at where you ended up. You found your way to what you're good at. And at some point, it might be interesting to, to go into that a little yeah. bit. It's a concept that I'm trying to introduce to you. Um, and it begins with the following thought. You were born, you, the person listening to this, unique, an individual. Your DNA, totally different from anybody else's. Uh, that's a fact. And the way your brain is wired, etc. There will never be anybody else on the planet with exactly your DNA and your brain configuration. It's a pretty amazing fact to think about that. And when you were a child, when you were really young, this difference of yours was a lot clearer. You were drawn without in any way to verbalize it. You were drawn to certain things. I know if I look back in my deepest childhood, I was drawn to words and the sound of words just sort of enchanted me. But for other people, it can be sports, 
images. They have a visual mind. Other people, it's patterns and mathematics, whatever. And essentially, I believe, I can't prove it scientifically, everybody had these inclinations at some point in their life. But what happens as you get older is you start off listening to your family, your teachers, your peers. They start telling you what they think you should be doing. You start listening to your friends are saying is cool and not cool. Teachers are telling you you're good at this, you're bad at that. And you lose complete sense of what was natural to you, what you really love, what you were drawn to. And you have to learn all of these other things in school that you don't like. If you're a word-oriented person, you have to learn math. And suddenly you hate that. And then you go, oh, shit, I just hate all learning. This is the French teacher example that we were just talking about. And I was good at languages and I hated French and thought I'm terrible at this because the way that she decided languages needed to be taught was look at this book and look at this verb table and memorize all this. And if you come in and you don't know it, you fail. Yeah, a completely dead approach to language. Language is all about socializing. That's why we have language in the first place. And it's supposed to be a real encounter where two people are dialoguing or whatever to turn it into something like a math formula is to kill it. But that happens in so many subjects. And so we get turned off from learning. We get into the university system. We don't know what we really like. We choose a job because our parents are saying we have to make money. We have to make money. Friends are saying this is where everyone's going. I get onto Wall Street or I become a lawyer. You're kind of lost. And then you can kind of fake it if you're young because you've got all this energy and you look good and people like you and you're out doing things. But eventually getting into a field that doesn't connect to who you are, to what that difference was that I mentioned at birth, it catches up to you. Usually around the age that you happen to be at, mid-30s, can be a little later, a little earlier. You're not paying attention to things going on in your career, to what's going on. People are younger and more eager or keep coming up. You get downsized, quit, you don't know where to go, and you're a mess. It depends on where you are on that scale, whether you're 22 just starting out or whether you're more like that mess at 35. The process of reconnecting and discovering who you are and finding out what you are meant to do is not like something that happens overnight. It's a process. It's a very important process that requires some introspection, reconnecting to who you are. I get people who come to me and they say, I like your book. It's intellectual. I understand it. But I have no idea what my life's task is. It's like you might as well be speaking in Swahili. I can't figure it out. And I say, all right, give me some time. Give me a couple of weeks. Let's talk. Let's figure it out. And we go through that. These are people who I consult with. And we discover, you know, what point they kind of lost it when they started to listen to other people. What are the things that make them excited? I always say there's a subject out there. It can be an intellectual subject or it can be an activity that when you do it or when you read about it, it makes you excited in a way that you just can't verbalize. For me, it's reading about our earliest human ancestors in a newspaper or magazine or online. Wow, I just have to read about it. It excites me so much. I can't begin to explain it. These kinds of things are indications of something about what you are naturally drawn to. And all of the people who are really successful in life, and I really want to emphasize that, who are really successful in life, have that emotional, personal connection to their work. It's the most important step in your life. It doesn't mean it has to be 100% orgasmic and pleasurable and that you just are waking up every moment on a cloud and, oh, I love music and I'm doing it. No, we have to make money and there's other things involved. In a general sense, 
if you're not in some way passionate or excited about where you're headed, there's no mental challenge, you're never going to get very far. So it's the first chapter and it's the most important point in the book. And that definitely jibes. When I read that, I was like, oh my God, this is me. Because when I was young, when I was about eight or nine, I was trying to build an FM transmitter. And I tried again when I was in my early teens because I wanted to be a talk show host, which is funny because I'm doing that now. And I didn't even put that together until I think it was my mom or cousin pointed it out. I also was really good at figuring out systems and I liked doing that. And I got caught, I got in trouble because I was wiretapping when I was 13, 14 years old. I always liked those types of systems and those things like that. And so now looking back, I'm like, ah, the reason that I love doing this is because it's essentially what I would be doing as a hobby anyway, except now I get to make it my job. And I had a little detour where I wanted to be a teacher, which is essentially what the show is about in the first place. And of course, before that, guys who listen to the show know that I went to law school I went and worked on Wall Street. It was awful because everybody went, you should be a lawyer. That was the worst thing ever. You found your way. Probably you got frustrated and you hated your life and sort of listened to yourself. Even the law school, it taught you something that you can still use today. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So that's how you have to approach it. Like nothing is wasted. Even my worst jobs at the time where I figure, what the hell am I? Why am I doing this? Um, I learned a hell a lot about people and their psychology and, and all that. So I want to tell people that it's even when if you're stuck in a bad job and, and you're trying to figure your way out, you still have to have the approach that everything around you is like a learning process. And there's always something to get out of even the worst job that you're in. I would definitely agree with that. Any sort of adversity can be turned into an opportunity if you frame it correctly. How should guys go about this? I mean, what if guys are thinking, well, crap, I'm a lawyer right now or I'm in the medical profession or whatever the myriad of emails that I get from guys and they go, I don't even know what I want. I don't even know what my life's task is. Do we have some sort of practical application that we can throw out there? One thing is, I'd say men are worse than women on this front, is we're not usually good at introspection, let's put it that way, sort of taking time off to think about ourselves. We're not really connected terribly deeply to our own feelings about what really excites us and what doesn't. Well, women are generally a little more in tune with these things. And so you have to kind of develop that as almost a skill or a power in your life. And it's a very, very important skill. And what I mean is you have the ability every now and then to step back from all the madness of your life and all the things that you're doing and to sort of assess where you are. Are you enjoying this? Is it challenging? Is it the right thing for you? Who are you really? Why do you hate this kind of work? You know, you hate politicking and all the bullshit. Well, maybe that's an indication that you should be an entrepreneur. You should be working for yourself. You don't like working in large groups of people, which is something I definitely shared for myself. You love writing uh, literature and yet you're a lawyer. Okay. It's not a matter of suddenly quitting your job as a lawyer and writing a novel. It's a matter of finding out how you can segue into it, how you can now start becoming a writer dealing with legal matters. Lawyers have to do a lot of writing and maybe there's a way to combine that and slowly turn it into something practical, a form of journalism or whatever, and then eventually you can write a novel or a screenplay, making it a kind of a a logical progression. But you can't do any of that unless you're listening to yourself. With you, Jordan, you were listening to yourself 
when you got the jobs on Wall Street and the jobs in law, you know, this isn't fitting for me. I don't like it. I got to get the hell out even though I'm getting paid. I, I hope uh, I'm being reasonably accurate here. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I didn't think of it as listening to myself at the time. I just thought of it as I really hate what I've listened to from everyone else. So I'm just not going to do that anymore and screw it. Even if I'm poor for a while, I'll figure it out. So I guess that was sort of like, well, I'm not going to listen to anyone else. So that by default, I am now leading. People are afraid of not making money. And if that dominates your life, then it's going to be very difficult to do what I'm talking about. I mean, I understand if you're older or you've got kids to support and, and bills, etc. But if you're addicted to the paycheck and you can't get off of it and you're just so scared, then don't even bother. I mean, that's going to be where you are. That's a lifelong uh, problem that you have. But if you'd go the opposite direction, you learn to, like you did, quit and live minimally for a while and kind of be on the edge and do the things that I'm saying, like listening to yourself, what you like, what frustrates you, what excites you. Every time later in life when you hit a dead end and it happens to everyone, it still happens to me, you'll be able to do what I talk about and say, all right, now's the time to step back, look at myself. And then if I have to take a pay cut, I can take it because I took it before in life and it wasn't as bad as I thought. These are life skills that you're developing. Making money is not the only important skill in this world. There are life skills where you know how to handle certain situations like changes in your life, like having to deal with less money and things like that. Absolutely. I definitely agree to that. So maybe guys can think of or write down things they liked to do as a kid. And you sort of mentioned this before and discover what that life's task might be. Sort of get in touch with those passions again. Well, okay. So the part of the process that I have people, it's a little bit almost like therapy in a way. It's a lot of fun, actually, is to go dig into the deep childhood stuff and try and remember some of those early, earliest memories. Sometimes there's just nothing there, and I understand that. But usually there's something that comes up, at least up until the age of 15, of some activity or subject that does have that effect on you. And then we analyze it. Is it something that's really you, or, or were you really into music because everybody else was into? So, But it's not just looking at your earliest childhood. You have to be attentive to the present, even in the job that you have now, where there are aspects of it, there, even if it's working at Wendy's or whatever. Oh, well, I actually like, you know, talking to people when I'm doing this, that and the other. I hate the burgers. And uh, this is a terrible analogy I'm building here. But there's an aspect that you like, whatever that is. Okay, but think about it and be aware of it. And then there are things that you don't like. You got to look at your emotional makeup in the present. And the thing that you have to understand is success and, and mastery and power is not an intellectual pursuit. It's not a question of learning a lot of things from books. It's actually an emotional quality. The fact that you're disciplined, patient, persistent, that you love what you're doing, that you can put up with criticism, that you're tough. These are all emotional qualities that uh, Steve Jobs or a Thomas Edison or whomever you want to look at, that's what they have. So I'm trying to reconnect you to those qualities that you have, those emotions that you're feeling in the present of where you hate something or you love something. And looking at your child is, is a component, but it's not the only thing that we can do here. I love that because a lot of people will write in and they just have no idea where to even begin. And a lot of people listening might be going, I read this book and you're only focusing on the first 10%, but I think this is 
very, very important, especially from my audience here, people really do get stuck. And none of the other steps really matter if you're not even sure what you want to do in terms of how you're going to apply yourself. And it can be vague. I mean, it's not like you know that you have to do exactly this job. That's not how it works. It's usually like, you know, I want to be a writer. This was my scenario. I didn't know what I wanted to write. And it's a pretty wide field that includes television and journalism and novels, etc. But with that wide parameter of this is what I love, I then could explore within it and try different things. If you're at a younger age, you have that option. If you're older, maybe you don't. But it's not like you're going to narrow it down to, oh, I was meant to do entertainment law for this, this, and this. You want to give yourself some room to explore. It's like an adventure that you're setting out on, particularly if you're younger, and you can find out what you hate and what you love, and then eventually you'll find your way to that perfect thing like you have. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. All right, let's get back to the good stuff. What about guys who say, well, you know, I'm too old. And you sort of touched upon this when you were saying if you're already established in a field, maybe you can sort of segue things over like the lawyer who does a lot of writing who becomes a writer. Is there a time when people say, I'm too young, I'm too old, I can't do this because, because one of the things we work on here is getting past excuses. And I think people listening are either going, hell yeah, I can't wait to do this. Or they go, yeah, that's fine for some people, but I blah, 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 can't do it because X, Y, Z, especially guys who say I'm too old. Well, it depends on what the old is. If you're 70, okay, okay, I think maybe you're too old, maybe 65. That'd be about my limit. If you say anything earlier, I'd start getting a little bit cranky with you. But it's different at each phase of life. If you're in your 30s and you're really unhappy and you're frustrated, you still have plenty of time to make a fairly radical change, which could include going to school or apprenticing somewhere. You still have more time than you think. 
If you're in your 40s, it's a different assessment. Basically, you've been working at a job. Let's say you were a lawyer for 20 years and you just totally burn out. You can't just suddenly make a radical break. It has to be something a little more gentle, in which case you have to look at the skills that you have as a lawyer and what it brought you and figure out a way where you can now segue into something that is more connected to you personally. Also, if you've had four different jobs, for instance, none of them quite connecting, you could take a look, you could take a step back and say, all right, I've learned from these jobs that I really didn't like, four different kind of interesting, weird skills that I can now combine in a new business. I can come up with a business idea uh, that's totally unique, that's based on all of my interesting experience, and that's going to be the next step that I take. And that can happen in your 40s or 50s. It depends on where you are and who you are. Not everybody is the same. None of us really like change anyway. But as we get older, we like it even less. So it has to be gentle and realistic. If I went out there and said, no matter what age you are, just quit your job and follow your passion, that's just a lot of bullshit. And you're going to end up getting angry at me and you won't become a master and you won't be successful because it's ridiculous advice. It has to be realistic and work with what your strengths and weaknesses. As I said, if you're 70, maybe it's too late because you're so set in your ways. But the other thing to keep in mind, your most creative years, and this is a book really about creativity, are your 30s and maybe the first half of your 40s. If you're younger, you really want to be keeping that in mind. You want to be focused and use your 20s as a period for learning and accumulating skills so that when you hit those 30s and your mind is still active and you have really a lot of energy, you can now take all of those things that you learn and do something really exciting. So although it's never too late, it's really better to start early. Got it. When we do finally find out what we're really passionate about, you discuss a lot in the book, actually, about the ideal apprenticeship and the mentor dynamic. A lot of people reach out and they want mentorship or they want to know how to approach people for mentorship. You're kind of an expert on the subject, and I've actually spoken with some people who we have in common who are very good at this as well. Charlie Hone, Ryan Holiday, those kind of kids are just like prodigies when it comes to it. What advice do you have for people who are looking to learn about a certain field or get mentorship in a certain field? As, you know, a lot of people will reach out and go, I want a job at the Art of Charm. And all I can think of is, yeah, you and everybody else get in line. Yeah, I get a lot of that too. People who want me to be their mentor, et cetera. And actually, Ryan Holiday was my mentee four or five, six years ago. He was my assistant. There's two things. There's the apprenticeship phase that I'm talking about. And I really want you to think in these terms. The problem that a lot of us have is we get out of school. Our school life is very directed. We've got teachers and principals and a family sort of telling us what to do and a, and a routine. And then we're suddenly thrust into the real world and we've got no guidance, nothing. We're completely on our own. And I want you to think of this is actually not a time for just wandering. It's a time I'm going to call your apprenticeship. It could be maybe eight to 10 years or seven to 10 years. It roughly corresponds with your 20s, but it bleeds into the 30s, which it certainly did for me. And it's a time where you're developing all of your skills. It's not a time of making money. If you're so obsessed with making money, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. You're going to grab a job that pays well, 
but doesn't give you an opportunity to learn because you're so worried about making a mistake. It's such a big company and you're never really hands-on on all these different tasks. It's better to, to take a job at a place where you're going to learn. Learning is the gold that you're going to transform into something amazing when you get on your own in the 30s. You want skills. You want to learn about how to work with people, how to deal with difficult people. You want to turn yourself into a great observer of things going on in the world around you. You want to be someone who's patient and disciplined and organized. All the things that you're going to learn at three or four or five, or in my case, unfortunately, 50, 60 different jobs, that's what you're after. I tell you in the book, I'm showing, here's how to think of that period in your life. Here's how to structure it. Here's what you need to go for. What are the most important things? You can still be in an apprenticeship throughout your 30s, etc., but it's really mostly when you get out of the university. Now, part of the getting an apprenticeship is if you can, finding a mentor. It's not always possible. It depends on where you live and who you are and your circumstances. But, you know, people are always looking for a shortcut to power. And I always say there is no shortcuts. And wanting a shortcut is almost a sign that you're not going to ever get there. Yes, I agree so much with that. The one shortcut that actually is kind of true is a mentor because they're able to really focus you and show you what you're good at, what you're not good at. The things they've learned, they can now give to you in a really direct one-on-one -on -one personal way. They can criticize you and give you instant feedback on what you're doing. It's just like the fastest way you could get to master music 10 years on your own practicing. But if you have this great jazz artist mentoring you, it could be five years with that kind of instruction. And the question is, how do you find a mentor? It's a complicated process. But the most important thing to realize is you can't begin to ask for a mentor until you've got something to offer. If you're fresh out of school or whatever and you don't have discipline, you don't have a resume, you can't tell him or her, I've organized this person's life, I know how to do this research and that, no one's going to hire you. It's just like people are going to hire you if they can see, ah, I'm going to get something in return. I get this young person with a lot of energy who can do the things I don't want to do, who's going to save me time, who will do some of the research for me, etc. The main mistake people want to do is I want him to be my mentor. I want to work at the Art of Charm. Why would he choose you over the 2,000 other people? You've got to have something that separates you from the crowd. So maybe spend two or three years working in different jobs so that you reach a point where you do have something to offer a really incredible person and they will take you on because the other true fact is people who are successful do like taking on protégés and disciples. It's a very satisfying relationship. They're open to it, but you have to have something that's going to appeal to their self-interest. People that will come and ask to work here, as I mentioned before, and they go, what do I need to do to be useful. Unfortunately, it doesn't really work like that. It's not my job to figure out what you need to learn to deliver value. I know this is true for a lot of people in similar shoes at higher levels that I talk to all the time. We've sort of mutually agreed that what needs to happen is you need to make it so it's impossible for us to ignore the value that you're bringing to the table. And it can't be some like, wouldn't it be great if I could triple your revenue? I mean, how are you gonna do that? You're 25. Maybe you have a great idea, I don't really care about that, but if you come and you say, I designed something for you that I can create that's going to help you and what do you think of it? 
I need to be able to go, wow, I didn't even have it in the budget to hire you, but I need you working on this yesterday. That's really true. And and what happened with Ryan, as people know who Ryan Holiday is, I met him through Tucker Max. I don't know if you know who Tucker is. He's of course. Good. Ryan was a fan of my books. You know, he wanted to be my researcher, but I didn't know who the hell he was. And I knew, though, that he was kind of a whiz kid with the Internet which I'm not because I'm an older guy. Uh, at some point I said, well, Ryan, I'm having real problems with my Wikipedia page. And he said, yeah, I can fix that for you. This is my way of testing him. He did. He, you know, To me, it seemed like I had no idea how to fix it. Then a week he had it completely fixed. And then uh, I'm on the board of directors for American Apparel and the CEO suddenly was telling me, you know, I'm having problems with my Wikipedia page. All right, I got the person for you. That's Ryan Holiday. And he heard it from me and he trusted me. And then Ryan got a job at American Apparel and then the rest is history. He wrote his book and he's writing other books based on all of that. But he had like a real skill, like you mentioned. I could see him helping me. And once he had his foot in, then he could do all sorts of other things and figure it out. One thing I tell people in the apprenticeship phase uh, that's an important skill to have is to make yourself an observer. What happens is people are so eager to, to impress and prove themselves and be charming, et cetera, that they're not paying attention. If you pay attention to Jordan and his problems and what he needs with his work, if you work for him for free for a month, helping him organize his schedule, et cetera, and you just pay attention, you'll kind of figure out some things that this guy needs really badly, and you'll have a plan for helping him do it. But you're not going to be able to get to that point if all you're thinking about is, you know, how can I impress this guy right away? What can I do? I'm going to triple his revenue, et cetera. Just ridiculous schemes, as opposed to just stepping back and being realistic and observing what other people need. And that's what you're going to supply. Absolutely. Speaking of observation, you talk a lot about seeing people as they are. And this delves right into the core of what we teach at The Art of Charm is social intelligence. Why is it important to see people as they are? And how do we start to dive into that? And I know we're figuratively dancing around the concept of mastery here, but I think we can even leave that to another time because I think the prelude to it is just as important. Why is it so important to see people as they are? And how do we start that process? I included it. It's a chapter in mastery for a very important reason, and that is... I don't want to give you the impression that just being brilliant at your job and having skills and all that is enough in this world. Uh, we're social animals and you can be a great computer programmer, but if you're just have repulsive personal habits and you're really bad with people and you're insulting them, it doesn't matter whether you're Steve Wozniak, you won't get very far in life because you have no social skills. And then the other thing is people who have social skills, it's a form of intelligence that connects very well with mastery. People who are attentive to individuals, to other people around them are also attentive to the details of their work. So the two go hand in hand. I'm trying to say that the people around you, everybody's different. As I said in the beginning, this sort of primal uniqueness. And you're not seeing that. You're projecting onto them fantasies from your childhood. They're like this woman or this man or father or mother. Or you're paranoid and you think that they're evil and they're after you. Or you're idealizing them because you think they're just the most marvelous person. You're doing this constantly, day in and day out. And because of that, you're making all sorts of mistakes where you're not picking up cues that people are leaving about what they want and what they really are after. You're just constantly misreading them. And it's troubling. And it's actually going to be the main cause for a lot of grief and problems in your career. And so the key is to be able to be aware that that's what's going on and then to go through a process 
where you try and see people, as you said, see people as they are, which is the name of the chapter. And how you do that, I mean, there are many ways, and I give tips on that. But one example would be, let's say three months ago, you were involved in some terrible battle in your job and you got fired or something bad happened. Now, your normal reaction is to just, God damn it, that was their fault. You're such an awful person. Why couldn't they see how brilliant I am, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Take that now as a learning experience. Step back and say, maybe I did something wrong there. Let me look at myself through their eyes as an exercise. Maybe they saw me in a way that has nothing to do with how I see myself. And perhaps there was something that I did that was involved in the conflict. There are other ways to approach it. But basically, you're trying to put yourself in the perspective of other people and imagining how they see the world, what their pet peeves are, what their loves are. Suddenly, you have 20 weapons in your arsenal. They include the ability to not blame other people for mistakes and see that maybe you are part of the problem. It gives you the ability to charm people. If we're talking about the art of charm, you know them, you know what they need, what their weaknesses are, what they really are looking for in life. You can supply it. You know what they hate so you can avoid making those mistakes. It just changes the whole game. And it's actually the subject of my next book. So I'm transforming chapter four of Mastery into an entire book. And then I'm going to take it to a whole other level as far as how to read people. But once you're there, it just changes your whole approach to the social and it makes something like mastering your career uh, so much easier. And so that, that sort of leads into my next question, which is what is the next book? It's about social intelligence and reading people? Well, I'm calling it the laws of human nature. And I went through in mastery, a key theme is something from neuroscience called mirror neurons, which is essentially our ability to empathize with other people. This unique human ability to put ourselves in the mind of the other person and imagine their experience, their thoughts. No other animal has it. I maintain it's the source of so many of our powers. And there are studies out there showing that that empathic power of ours is declining rather dramatically among young people probably because of social media, but there are other factors. And it's been documented scientifically. It's not just some old cranky guy imagining young people. It's from a very important, famous University of Michigan study and a few other studies. And so I'm trying to say that the art of reading people comes from our ability to place ourselves in their shoes, imagining what their experiences are like, and to have a deep understanding of human nature. What are the main drives that really impel people? such as the drive to be acknowledged, to be recognized, to have validation and attention from other people, that kind of thing. I'm going to show you these sort of laws of human nature. And through that, I'm going to help you develop ways for reading these things in people and giving you all kinds of tips on, on how people reveal themselves in everyday life, in conversation, through their actions, so that by the end of the book, you'll just be a more socially proficient person. Excellent. I mean, it sounds a lot like some of what we teach at The Art of Charm to some degree as well, which is excellent. There's going to be a lot of overlap there, I'm sure. And we'll obviously have to have you on before that book is released to help you launch that sucker. Yeah, well, it's a couple years away because I'm just starting. I might have to consult with you. You might have some brilliant ideas. So. Uh, I would love the shit out of that. And I would be more than happy to help with anything that you've got going, especially in, in this area of expertise. We are at your disposal. Absolutely. Yeah, well, we'll make it happen. Definitely. 
Thanks so much, Robert Green. Now, where can guys find out more from you? Where would you like to send people? Obviously, I always encourage people when they hear, where would you like our readers and listeners to go? Well, I have a website. Um, it's powerseductionandwar.com. The and is spelled out. Those are my first three books, uh, 48 Laws of Power, Art of Seduction, and, and Strategies of War. Um, and so powerseductionandwar.com. And I have blog posts. I haven't updated in a couple of years. I'm sorry to say. There's some interesting blog posts on there from a few years back and links to all sorts of interviews I've done, as well as links to my new book, Mastery, and a way to contact me at an email address. And I do respond to people. So that would be the best way. Yeah, you're very accessible. And I appreciated that from the very beginning when we first started communicating, however many years ago that was. And of course, we're going to be linking to your books in our bookstore, on our website, as well as in the show notes for this, so people can look for them without digging if they don't want to. But of course, go to that website, powerseductionandwar.com. Excellent. Thanks so much, Robert. That was really good. Solid. Thank you so much, Jordan. I really, I really enjoyed it. Recently, it was my birthday, so I decided to write a letter to essentially all of you guys as listeners. Some of you guys are new, so welcome. Some of you guys have been here for about seven years, even longer. It's almost a decade. So thank you very much for being here, and thanks for giving us your attention, so much of it. Building this show, this brand, our live programs, has been my greatest pleasure in life. Watching the transformation of our students as men has been amazingly rewarding and fulfilling. I think of all of you as brothers on the same path as myself, and although we at The Art of Charm may be shining a light on that path to help uncover the way, at the end of the day, this journey is really about you. We've listened to your survey responses, and we're going to be changing the content we put into the podcast so that it's more of AJ and I and the other coaches at The Art of Charm, and more personal growth versus just dating. And as you can tell, we really took a turn this year, and we will continue to do so. It's about being the whole man, and we get that. You get that. For every man I meet who wants to indulge in casual sex, I meet 10 who want to become better men. So, as with all superpowers... What a person does with all this material comes down to how it is applied. It's really just a matter of values and principles. The same values and principles which provide us with unbelievable strength and power, confidence and passion. To go after what we want and to bring others into our lives knowing that we will leave them better than they were before. My sincere hope is that you'll use what you're learning here on this show and at The Art of Charm to enrich the lives of your friends and family, as well as the women in your life that you may be pursuing or even partnered up with right now, perhaps even as a result of what you've learned here. You guys are truly my dream team, and we here at The Art of Charm are honored to be in your service. Thanks, and continue to enjoy the show for another seven years. All right, show feedback and guest suggestions. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know at jordanh at theartofcharm.com. Boot camp details for our live programs also at theartofcharm.com, and that's where you're going to find links to us on Twitter, Facebook, and other social media as well. If you're listening to this but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher or something like that, then that needs to change. Getting our shows delivered free to your phone or computer is the best way to make sure you don't miss a thing. You can do that by going to iTunes and searching for the Art of Charm podcast or by going to theartofcharm.com slash iTunes and clicking subscribe. That's really it. And you guys can help us. Subscribe in iTunes and give us a five-star rating. 
write something nice, and we will love you forever. Just go to iTunes.com slash The Art of Charm, and it'll take you right there. When you write us a review, it not only makes us feel proud, but it helps keep us up in the ranks so that other people who can use this information can find the show more easily to get the credible advice that they need. It's also the best way to support the show other than purchasing products and training from us. So tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week. Go out there and get social and leave everything better than you found it.